Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today, we have a wonderful guest by the name of Sleem Hassan. Hello, Sleem. Hi, Alex. We are going to talk about his amazing journey uh, to Dubai. But first, let me make a very quick introduction. Uh, Sleem is the CEO and founder of Privity, uh, which is an independent Dubai-based advisory and investment firm. It was founded in 2004. Prior to that, he was involved with a uh, deeply involved with the financial services industry and fintech industry. He was also uh, an executive director at Nico, a Japanese company. But prior to that, his education takes us to University of Cambridge and University of Oxford, of all the places in London, where he received uh, his accolades uh, as a master's of honors in mathematics and then physical applied mathematics. Sleem, welcome to our studio and welcome to our podcast. And the first question that comes to mind is mathematics, London, your, your family is from Pakistan. How do you wind up in Dubai? Please tell us. Well, I, I might as well start from the beginning because um, then you'll get the entire picture if you allow me to. Um, uh, I was born in the Fiji Islands. Um, oh, wow. Yes, that's in the South Pacific. And at the age of two, my father got a job. Um, my late father got a job uh, to move to Nigeria. I come from a family of lawyers. Uh, my sister is third or fourth generation barristers in the family. And um, everybody did law. <clears throat> so we moved to Nigeria. And that's where my formative years were spent in the northern parts of Nigeria, starting off in Kano, then Kaduna, then in Sokoto. And then from Sokoto, um, where I did my ONA levels, which is the English system, I uh, got a place to read mathematics at Oxford at my late father's old college, Wadham College at Oxford. So I was very excited. And uh, I arrived in Oxford, I remember in September, October 1978. And they, they very kindly gave me his old room, staircase 11, room six. And uh, that really, really uh, chuffed me to no end. Um, and yeah, I, I spent three years there and I fell in love with maths and I wanted to be an academic. So uh, my tutor advised me to uh, do the part three of the mathematical tripos at Cambridge, which is, a, which is basically one of the two triposes at Cambridge that actually has four parts. It's almost like a misnomer, tripos would imply three that's the number that comes to mind. But mathematics and physics actually have four parts. And the part three of the math mathematical tripos at Cambridge is almost like a stepping stone to do a PhD. So that was really the game plan initially. Um, having secured a grant to uh, read at, uh, uh, to do the part three of the math tripos at Cambridge, I thought, well, if I can secure a grant to do a PhD, there'll be no burden on my, my, late, my late father. And, um, I'll be happy to do that. Unfortunately, I did not get a grant. So consider myself a failed academic at heart. And that's when I decided to move to London and decide to earn my crust. Uh, these were early Thatcher years, early 80s, uh, the years 1982 now. And um, it wasn't easy uh, trying to secure a job because there were a lot of privatization programs going on, culling exercises were in place. But I persevered and, uh, you know, 11, 12 months later, pounding the streets and knocking on doors and applying for jobs, um, 
there were three Japanese companies that actually very kindly invited me to uh, for a first interview. Two of them actually turned me down, and that wasn't surprising because you know I'd had a huge, you know, long list of rejections till that point. And then one particular company called Nico Europe PLC invited me back for a second interview. And guess what? They offered me a job as a graduate trainee, again bond salesman to start my career. And the rest is history, as they say. And that's how my uh, journey sort of changed from the world of academia into the financial world. I just wanted a job. They were kind enough to offer me a job. They sent me to Japan to train in 1984. So that was the Showa years, and I'm sure you're familiar with that because Alex, you seem to be quite knowledgeable on Japan yourself.、Um, yes, a little bit. Yes. Yes, and、uh, I mean that was the emperor at the time, so they go by the emperor's. Uh, period,、um, yeah. So I trained in Japan, came back, and、uh, at the age of twenty-six, I was one of the youngest directors, if not the youngest director, appointed at Nikko Europe PLC. I ran the equity and equity derivatives department for seven of the eleven years that I was there, and、um, I guess I'd risen up the ladder as fast as one could、uh, do as a gaijin, meaning non-Japanese, as opposed to the Nihonjins. And、um, I had a lot of fire in my belly, and I wanted to do more. But obviously, you hit a glass ceiling, and that's when I went to the chairman of Nikko Europe at the time, and I asked him、um, if he could grant me early release. He gave me his blessings, and that was when I really embarked into the big bad world to try my luck at、uh, doing my own thing. And、um, it took a while,、uh, you know, applying to the SFA, which is the UK regulatory. Body for financial institutions. They've since then changed or morphed in in terms of their structure, but it's now called the Financial Conduct Authority of the United Kingdom. It's equivalent to your SEC in the US. And、um, yeah, so 11 months later, August 1996, I get a letter from the SFA saying you've been granted a license to start work. And guess what? I never looked back. I just got my hands and. Feet deep dived into it straight away and started working like a maniac. And in the first three years, I'm pleased to say I made multiple returns on my capital reported at UK companies house with the UK regulators at the time. And that was really my first taste of entrepreneurship, ever. You know,、uh, obviously markets, as you know, have ups and downs, good days, bad days. And、um, after a while. It became, you know, this was my bread and butter for a, a while. So the year is 2002 now, and I was on an Emirates flight going to Karachi, but <clears throat> I have friends and family there. I originally come from Pakistan. Before, you know, it was before 1947. It was called, you know,、uh, British India before the partition took place, and so we all originally hail from that. And before that, my four parents came from Kashmir. So those are our roots, as it were. But anyway, I was on this flight going to Karachi, and、um, I knew one gentleman from my London days in Dubai. And if you fly Emirates, you've got to, you know, transit through Dubai. That's the hub. And back in the day, they used to offer this forty-eight hour free layover if you want to transition through Dubai. And he very kindly offered to pick me up at the airport, you know, stay at his place for forty-eight hours, and you know, move on. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. The very night I arrived, I was on his balcony round about sunset, around this time. And I'd gone out, stepped outside to have a fag. And um, the evening breeze that hit my face, um, I smelt the desert. Now, this is probably absolutely of no interest to probably anybody if you haven't experienced a desert or even grown up in one. But I grew up in Sokoto in the northwestern part of Nigeria. Um, every day was a sunny day, and the day wasn't going to be sunny or rain. There'd be a, a dust storm that precedes it, and guess what? We know it's going to rain. You didn't, you didn't need a weather person in, in Sokoto. So I was very familiar with the desert, and guess what? That, that night in 2002 at my friend's, on my friend's balcony, it brought back a lot of childhood memories, you know, because I grew up in a desert, and it just attracted me to this place. I did not really know a soul other than that one, one gentleman whose house I was staying at, and um, that's when my love affair with Dubai began. I enjoyed, enjoyed um, um, just the whole being in Dubai, you know. I did not have any business. I did not know a soul. And um, I could say that's when the clock started. So for the first two years, I kept commuting London and Dubai, trading my, you know, Japanese uh, uh, markets out of, out of Dubai. And, I, and that I found uh, out of interest, um, the time zone, uh, quite advantageous because of the three, four hour time difference with the UK. So instead of working the graveyard shift that I've done for many, many years in London from midnight to six or from one to seven in the morning, depending on winter, summertime, you could get up at a civilized hour here at four or five in the morning and by 10 o'clock you were done. So that's another reason why I kind of found it interesting to operate out of Dubai. The third thing, was for doing exactly what I was doing in London here in Dubai, I didn't have to pay tax. So when I put these three things together, I one day looked myself in, my, in, in the mirror in my apartment in London and said, Salim, you love the place. The hours are kinder. You've got a pay rise. Which of these three things do you not understand? Told my friends and family, I wasn't married in those days. I said, I'm packing my bags and I'm moving to Dubai. And that's how my journey or love affair with Dubai started, just to give you some context. What an incredible story. Um, now, when you and I met in Dubai uh, a couple of years ago, we spoke about the startup scene and so forth, and you're being referred to as a father of startups in Dubai sometimes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about how the sort of you've taken your passion for entrepreneurship, your um, risk-taking approach to life, um, and, uh, you know, a, sort of a, a opportunistic type of approach to life and so forth, and how you sort of attracted a lot of the startups, a lot of the ecosystem, if you will, or building the ecosystem in Dubai as well. Well, um, I'm sure there are people who preceded me, and you're very kind enough to call me the father of startups, but I won't flatter myself. But I'll tell you how I ended up in this space. I think that that is more more really what perhaps your viewers would like to hear. For somebody who wasn't, you know, who didn't come from the private markets background, I was, I spent my life or career up to that point in the public markets. How, how does one just transition to the private world? Well, I, I had a whole process of working that out and I had to work that out because a couple of things. One was I, you know, got up the very next morning when I moved to Dubai after two years of commuting between London and Dubai. 
And I remember I'd, I'd uh, rented a place in a building called uh, Number One Towers on the Sheikh Zayed Road, right in the center of Sheikh Zayed Road. Anybody who's familiar with Dubai would know what I'm talking about. And um, I get up the very next morning to trade Japan. I trade Japan, and at 10 o'clock, of course, in the morning Dubai time, Tokyo closes. At one minute past 10, I'm sitting in my room in Number One Towers and looking at myself saying, what on earth have you done? You don't have a business here. You don't know a soul. You finished your work at 10 o'clock in the morning at the time when most people are having the second cup of coffee, right? And um, I, was, I was done. And so and I looked at myself, well, you're not the type who's going to lie on a beach all day long. Certainly wasn't me. So that was when the second seed of entrepreneurship got sown. I said, hmm, maybe this is an opportunity of doing something, either continuing with something that I've already done or perhaps diversifying and starting something new. But what? So when I looked around Dubai, there were cranes everywhere. Dubai was what I call Dubai 1.0. It was in build mode, real estate, construction. I wasn't in real estate, nor was I in construction. So I was like looking at myself and going, hmm, I want to do something. I don't know what I want to do. And if I look around, Everybody was like, you know, hustling away, buying and selling property, left, right, and every, anybody at that time. And it was very unregulated at the time. I mean, now you have the real estate regulatory authority called RERA in Dubai, which regulates this space. But back then, there were no regulations. So anybody could come in and you could be a broker and buy a property and five minutes later, you'd be selling it to me and I'll be passing it on. That was sort of the order of play back then. Anyway, I've always had... Um, one thing that keeps guiding me in life, and that is if I want to know a place, if I want to know a community, I call it the sandstorm effect. There's only one way to hit, get hit by a sandstorm, and that's to stand inside it. So that's what I did. I didn't know this region, you know, the GCC I'm talking about, uh, the Gulf Cooperative Council. It's a region of about six, seven countries that comprise it. And I said to myself, um, you know, I'm going to travel and find out for myself. So I went to Saudi, Kuwait. Oman, Qatar, up and down to Abu Dhabi. And my conclusion was this region, by far and large, you know, they're blessed with hydrocarbons, some more, some less, but as a region, they've got gas, they've got oil. Um, and I was not in oil and gas. I wasn't in real estate or construction. I, did, I, wasn't, I, did, I didn't represent a big multinational or big bank. Um, so what am I going to do? You know, so this was the, so I, I first said, let me come up with a name. And I chose the name Privity. And believe it or not, it's not got any connection with private equity, though it might sound as if it's an acronym. It actually um, comes, it's a legal term, as in privity of contract. And there again, being, you know, from, from a long line of lawyers, a family of lawyers, I picked up a lot of legal jargon through dad, through sister, brother, you know, people around me and my friends at university, some of them were, were lawyers and some of them become top silks in the UK today. Um, so I chose an imprivity, but I also liked the dictionary definition of privity, a mutual conversation between two parties to the mutual exclusion of all others. This I like, so privacy, element of privacy, private. And it also kind of sort of rhymes with private equity if you want, so I chose the name. But what is privity going to do? I mean, I had no clue. So in a way, I had to go back to the drawing board again. 
um, I said, I've got to find something. Uh, let's, let's, let's pick one thing and focus on it. I mean, if you're starting off as something small, you don't want to be everything to everybody. So where, what should I start? What should I focus on? You know, I used to tell her friends a lot of things about this one thing that I ended up focusing on. And today I actually quoted in a privity presentation of my own entrepreneurial journey here. And what was that one word? Technology. I decided to zero into technology. Why? That's a question people like to hear an answer to. Why? I'll tell you why. Back then, even more so today, believe you me, it was the only discipline I had identified that has the ability to alter our ways of life, whether we choose to embrace it or not. And by that, I mean very simply, everything in life, you have the luxury of choice, right? Technology does not give you the luxury of choice. And when I realized the power and potency of this word technology, I looked at myself, I said, Salim, hmm, you're getting on now. If you really believe what you've just said, well then drop everything, focus on technology, and whatever time God has given you left, learn, unlearn, relearn, whatever you can on technology. <clears throat> so that's how tech started off. But again, tech is huge. Tech, it's, where do you start in tech? How do you start in tech? So again, back to the drawing board. And again, this whole process of going back to the drawing board perhaps is second nature to me by the very nature of the fact that I'm a mathematician. What do mathematicians do? We solve problems. What do entrepreneurs do? They solve problems too. So there must be some homeomorphic map between entrepreneurs and somebody with a mathematical mindset. It's just obvious to me, right? So I went back to the drawing board and I said to myself, I don't know what I want to do. I want to do tech, but where do I start? Now, Alex, here's the interesting thing. Not every one of us, as even if you're an entrepreneur, has the blessing of having a crystal ball in front of them. You might be the Mark Zuckerberg or the Elon Musk or the Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates. And absolutely, you know what you want to do. But the rest of the entrepreneurs have an idea, but sometimes you cannot see very far ahead. However, each and every one of us is blessed with a rucksack we carry on our backs. What I mean by that? Our past, our experience is full of data points. So guess what I did? I looked over my shoulder into my rucksack and said, Salim, what have you done? Oh, I've picked stocks in Japan. All right, stop there. You've picked stocks in Japan. Why didn't you just write that down in a sentence to show you understand what it is? Well, tell me, explain what you were doing. So I was acting as some kind of modem that was linking capital with ideas. Okay, capital being the clients, the investors, ideas being the stocks that I was picking, the modem being, you know, the, the investment bank or the platform that you worked at. Okay, so I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to transform this job into a business process. Let privity be a modem that links capital with ideas. Okay, so I'm starting to put structure to this, right? But what capital and what ideas? I had to go back to the drawing board again. So once again, now this is the perfect thing to look at because you know I, I can see you on my left and I, I'm on the right in these two screens, right? It's almost like a Venn diagram, yeah? And there's a line in the middle. So I said to myself, 
if we took every single idea in the world, a stock, right? And I was to draw a big Venn diagram. How many slices and dices of this Venn diagram do I have to do to accommodate every single stock or company in the world? And my answer was very simple. Draw a line in the middle, just like we're partitioned in these two screens in front of us. And guess what? Every company and any company that you and I can think of will either fit on the left side or on the right side. Any company in the world. What does that mean? Well, the line that splits the left and the right is called an IPO because a company is either private or it's public. I don't know of any other kind of company in this world. So suddenly I had mapped the entire corporate world with its big, small, private, public into a box. Yet my experience and my expertise had been on the right-hand side of this box in the public domain. Huh. So again, back to the drawing board. So I said to myself, all right, I've had this experience on the public side to the right of the IPO line, but I know nothing on this left side. Perhaps I should be bold enough to venture into that and try to figure it out for myself. And that's precisely what I did. In mathematics, an engineer, a physicist will all know what's called reverse engineering. And that's what I did. So I picked a point on the right side and said, I'm going to reverse engineer it. What do I call this point? If you step over the line from right to left, a day before, you hit IPO, late stage private company, pre-IPO, want of a better phrase, right? So I started peeling the onion backwards. Middle, it's a middle stage private company. All the way back up to the beginning at T equals zero. Oh, an idea in someone's head. So an idea in an entrepreneur's head slowly builds up, gathers steam, raises capital, blah, blah, blah. And then I asked myself a second question. For the same stock that I'm picking in the public market, right? Because it's already gone public. It must have followed this path at some point. What value got unleashed, unlocked by the same point, this company I'm picking the public market from T equals zero to IPO, the world I didn't know. This is the second question I'm asking myself in my head. So I started digging up for data. 5X, 10X, 100X, 1000X, boom. A light bulb comes on in my, that, that was my eureka moment. I said, what on earth am I doing sitting here? And this was at the time, you know, the, the Japanese bull market was long gone. I mean, these were very challenging times. I said, perhaps if I'm fortunate enough to find even one or two of these puppies all the way upstream as close to T equals zero as possible, you know, I might be fortunate enough to ride this out. And without realizing what I was doing, I was slowly transforming, morphing myself into the world of early stage investing venture capital. So I've just walked you through that whole, what I call ratiocination, the process of actually, you know, walking through your mind, how I arrived in that world. It wasn't planned. It's not something I intentionally wanted to do. I wanted to stay in Dubai, anchor myself here, because I love this place. As I told you why I fell in love with this place. And um, I had to have, I had to find a reason to keep myself going after 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's how it all came about. So I'll take a little pause there. I hope that explains the, you know, the whole process. Well, you certainly, you certainly explained it extremely well. You, you almost applied a mathematical model to the, uh, to the entrepreneurship. So uh, it actually was very, very useful and interesting. But let's switch, gears, let's switch gears a little bit. 
I sure. want to talk about some very interesting and edgy, let's call them edgy topics, right? Because you, what you're describing is the mindset or the process that you were going through being, you know, uh, you know, being later in your career, being later in your, in your life, right? Entrepreneurship for some unknown reason is always being associated with startups and young startups and folks in Silicon Valley, uh, 20 somethings, 30 somethings maybe. But uh, what's interesting is that I am um, associating myself with a lot of entrepreneurs worldwide and I'm finding that more and more, I'm seeing more and more that entrepreneurship is really not necessarily just tied to age or gender for that matter. Certainly not not tied to race by any uh, stretch of imagination, because uh, you know, globally entrepreneurship is alive and well in any country with any race with any gender. But let's pick on age for a second. Um, I'm finding more and more that people with their, as you said, rucksacks, right, with their um, um, with their quote unquote baggage and their experiences and so forth. They're becoming more and more entrepreneurial. They're becoming more and more, um, they're becoming members of that gig economy where they're enjoying the freedoms, they're enjoying their backgrounds and experiences, and at the same time coming up with some really interesting ideas, and, um, you know, whether through investment or participation or what have you. But let's talk about age, and let's talk about that very sensitive topic that says, look, to be an entrepreneur you don't have to be 25-year-old or 30-year-old in Silicon Valley raising money and being sort of the epitome of, uh, of all of the Gen Zs and millennials in the world. You could be Slim Hassan, who is in Dubai, who is uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s, and sort of reconfiguring, recalibrating their entire life, their entire career, and doing some interesting additional or new things that are very entrepreneurial. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's a very good question, Alex. And I can just share what I think were a confluence of factors that came together that's actually generated this explosion, I would call it, in the supply side of my business, the idea side, the entrepreneurs. Why, why are we seeing so many entrepreneurs, you know, everywhere today? You know, what... There are a variety of reasons. So I'll, I'll try to give you and the viewers or your listeners some data points that I think I believe. One, let's, let's go back. Back in the day when people wanted to start ventures, it, the, the, the entry point, the entry point in terms of cost was quite prohibitive. You needed at least a million dollars from your own pocket to start a business and buy the kid and whatever you had to do. What has happened since then? Computing power has gone up. Cost of computing has come down. Memory, uh, uh, memory capacity has gone up. And so the whole most low thing has taken place. So today it is cheaper to start a business at that age. Say at, a, at the age you were talking about, as you see, you know, the Gen Zs and the millennials. That's, that's one factor. The cost of starting a business has come down. Second, and again, in no order of importance, is... Um, Back in my time, you finish university, you apply to job, you either go to Wall Street or to the city or to the big consulting firms and so on and so forth. Well, guess what? 
over the years, there have been ups and downs in the financial world. You know, forget what happened now with the COVID crisis, but, you know, the, the last financial crisis when the Lehman shock took place in 2007-8. Um, that got a lot of kids of folks that were, say, working in the industry, they started thinking twice. Because what happened was, you know, financial firms started culling, the culling exercise, you know, laying off folks and stuff. And people felt, and you know, that whole job security, which we used to have in Japan once upon a time, doesn't exist anymore. So if you're not going to give me job security, why would I want to spend my time working with you? I mean, what, what, what is it in there for me? So that's another factor that I think that also um, um, uh, led folks today. And then today you find a lot of the young kids who've got bright ideas, who can start a business because it's affordable. And even if they fail, it's not a big deal. They've got age on their side. Um, gravitate into that space. They don't want to join Wall Street or they'd rather go to Silicon Valley and give it, a, give it, give it their best shot or wherever they are in this world. So, you know, I, I believe, you know, technology transcends color, creed, religion, race. And the most beautiful thing about technology that I find is that it's intellect interfacing with intellect. And that's all I care about. And that's one of the most beautiful spaces to be in. Coming back to the point about age, you remember the remark I made earlier about the, how I define technology, what made me gravitate towards technology as the only discipline I could identify, not giving you the luxury of choice? Well, that's what's happening today. So whatever age you're at, you could be 40, 50, 60, 70. If you want to get up and you still got enough fighting power in you and you want to become an entrepreneur, nothing should stop you. Nothing. The only thing that stops you is what's in your mind. It's about just rewiring yourself and that's all it is i was actually i was approached uh, last week by an entrepreneur out of pakistan wanted to talk to me and i have a very simple rule in life alex i never say no to the first cup of coffee with anybody never turn your nose up because you just never know and that's something i've learned the hard way through my own journeys in life uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll save that for another time um because what I didn't tell you is that the first five years of privity, there was nothing in my portfolio that was tech. Yet I did get involved in a couple of things that were not tech. One was an oil and gas venture in Nigeria and the other was an artist. You know, and these are totally uncorrelated. So people say, what are those two things doing in a tech portfolio? And I say, well, that's my legacy. You know, I didn't sit idle after 10 o'clock in the morning when the Japanese market closes. But anyway, this guy reaches out to me on LinkedIn and we, we had a call this morning and he was he was, I could tell he was green. You know, he wanted to um, get some tips of what he should do, how he should get involved into the tech world. And, and I, I was very straight up to him. I said, look, I said, there are no shortcuts here. You know, this is not for the faint hearted, but what you need to do is keep learning. You have to go and deep dive immerse. People talk about blockchain technology. Oh, I don't know what it is. I don't understand. Well, guess what? You've got to put in the hours like all of us, you know, I have spent 16 years of my life trying to reinvent myself. Um, and it's not easy. Let's be clear. It's not easy. There are ups and downs. There are challenges every day. You don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. You know, the cost of living has gone up here since when I first came. Yet, you know, the income is not regular, nor is it steady. So these are balancing acts that any single entrepreneur goes through. And it's for that very reason what I feel entrepreneurs warm to privity. Privity is a tiny shop. 
It's a tiny shop. Yet when new entrepreneurs knock on my door, whether it's you know, in person now that we can start to meet people again, or on a Zoom call like this, um, you know, I can relate to them because I'm going through that journey myself. Now, imagine you're in the corporate world and you're trying to interview an entrepreneur. In my humble opinion, there's going to be a delta there. There's going to be a mismatch there. For the very reason, if you're in, sitting down and you've got the security of comfort of a paycheck every month, and the other mindset is of someone who doesn't know where his next dollar is coming from, how can you relate to one another? On what basis are you relating to one another? You know, so it's very important to be on the same wavelength. And because I go through this phase myself, I've been in the entrepreneurial world since I did my first startup in the UK in 1996. So knock on wood, it's 24 years. But that's the, that's the break and jump I made many, many years ago. So, you know, they always say it takes X many years to become an overnight success. And, you know, um, I, I, I haven't, I haven't uh, had any unicorns coming out of my portfolio, but there's always hope. You always keep working hard, but you've got to be focused, a lot of grit and determination. There are no shortcuts, no free lunches. You've got to put in the time and you've got to be dedicated. Have a schedule and stick to it. Good day, bad day, up day, down day. You don't give up. Because the minute you give up, that's when you lose. That's precisely the point when you lose. As long, whatever happens, however difficult the night might be, tomorrow's a new day. And guess what? The sun is going to rise in the east. I trust you. Trust me on that. I absolutely love your optimism and um, your uh, almost viral nature of the uh, entrepreneurship. Let's talk. Uh, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what's going on in the world right now. Uh, obviously, with COVID things have changed dramatically. Um, I even, I recently did a presentation on some of the um, uh, value, uh, values and value system, how it changed uh, with COVID and how things have changed, not only for the corporations, but also for entrepreneurs and individuals and so forth. And you're absolutely correct. Thanks for technologies and thanks to technologies like Zoom and, and other technologies, we can continue to, uh, to communicate and communicate in the more interactive way. Although I do crave, just like you, I do crave that person-to-person -person interaction, those uh, firm handshakes and the hugs and, and, and you know, seeing old friends and so forth. But let's talk about COVID and let's talk about the impact of COVID and entrepreneurship. Um, the, 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 the process of, of fundraising, the process of doing presentations, the process of appearing at conferences, the process of, of uh, raising money and validating, doing due diligence. What was the impact of COVID uh, and disasters and pandemics like COVID on the entire world of entrepreneurs? What, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. That, that's, that, there are lots of sub-questions within that one question. So I'm trying to break it down and perhaps uh, answer them you know, one at a time. So covid um, was not planned, in my opinion. You know, whatever the source, how it started, it happened, right? And, you know, in markets, some people refer to these as black swan events, you know, very low, you know, probabilities, more than two standard deviations out for this type of event to take place. Whatever the source, however it started off, it took everybody by surprise. You know, some countries reacted swifter, others took their time. But regardless, I'm not here to make any judgment on who's right or wrong. 
everyone was affected. It affected travel, hospitality, everybody was affected. We all, we all went into lockdown, all right? So we were all almost in the same boat for once. You know, everybody was in the same boat, rich, poor, beautiful, ugly, tall, short, doesn't matter. We were all, and that's in a way how the human race should be, one big united family. But anyway, that sentiment aside, how did it impact the world of entrepreneurship? Um, with the data that I've seen thus far, I think um, it's fair to say, uh, make a couple of observations. Um, those people who were thinking of getting involved in this whole world of entrepreneurship, or you know, if, even if it was a company getting involved in some sort of digital transformation process, what did COVID do? It's actually accelerated, accelerated that process, um, for better or for worse. Yes, it's it's had it's it's paid a massive toll on people's lives, and you know, there's no way that those lives are going to come back, and it's 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 a pity um, that's happened. And I wish everybody, all your viewers and listeners, good health. And um, but but at the same time, one has to you know, as an entrepreneur, deal with this, right? So how does one go about dealing with this? Well, first and foremost, you double down in whatever you're doing. You just double down. I mean, if, if, if you're working on a project and you're trying to raise capital, try to raise it quickly. If you can't raise it quickly, check why, why you can't raise it quickly. All that's happened is that the fundraising goalpost has moved further away and the goalposts have narrowed. It's not that people are not raising capital in this environment. There's a lot of reporting taking place. And in fact, some countries say, even in our region here, in the first half this year, the numbers came out. I mean, Saudi has pumped in a lot of money into uh, the VC business and stuff. And, um, you know, more and more, more, more and more people are, you know, you know have, have observed what's happened to the tech stocks in spite of all what's happened. Everybody's spending time at home. Everybody's ordering online. Everybody's talking on Zoom and so on and so forth. Back to my point about tech being that one factor that is going to have you know, massive impacts on our life. So all I say to any would-be entrepreneur, you know, if you haven't thought about embracing it, just do it. Don't, don't think about it, just do it. You know, I almost sound like a Nike ad, um, you know, but uh, that's it. Because if you are going to embark on this journey, you know, now is the best time, not tomorrow, not the after now, you know, they, tomorrow you'll have 24 hours of data points behind you and you just start building it up. And that's, and that's what, what, what I would say. Um, the last point there I would, I would, I would mention is that, <clears throat> um, yes, there have been casualties in, you know, different, uh, uh tech spaces, whether it's in the FinTech spaces, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to, you know, several folks in this space and, you know, they have, they have been casualties. <clears throat> there have been people who, you know, who've raised tons of money and suddenly, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't work out because, you know, their market's not there anymore or the, some, something has changed dramatically from what it was before. That said, you have to go back as an entrepreneur and try to figure out how do I position myself and in an environment which, regardless of which way you know, whether a vaccine is found or not, whether it happens this year, next year, the year after, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. You know, any person who can give you any degree of clarity on that is doing based on insufficient data points, insufficient evidence. 
So it's very, very important to make sure, you know, you, you, you try to find something that either gets propelled. You know, there, there, are, there are silver linings in this COVID cloud. And some of the silver linings I'll, I'll, I'll just touch upon. I mean, it could be an online business, for example, because everybody's gravitating towards this. It could be health tech, you know. Health tech has suddenly gone up the roof. You know, people are looking for that. It could be something to do with, you know, I mean, I, I, I made a couple of bets this year myself, right in the middle of COVID. The first one was in mass mobility as a service. And the second one more recently was in traceability as a service. But to me, the logic stacks up. And that's what I look for. I look for interesting entrepreneurs who are doing interesting things. And, um, you know, these guys came forward. They, yes, they'll, they'll have to adjust a little bit in stuff. You know, say you, say you are focusing on something that COVID is going to impact. Well, then, you know, maybe you look for other verticals you can apply your services or products in or your app or whatever you're developing and then come back to that previous one once maybe, you know, uh, uh, COVID has eased and that business returns. So you've got to think on your feet because there's always a way, you know, you don't take no as an answer. You go in every day and you give it your best shot. And if it still doesn't work, get up the next morning and do exactly that all over again. That is some very, very great and sound advice. And I want to thank you for this introductory podcast. I would love to invite you to do additional podcasts. Um, one of the topics I'd like to discuss next in the next uh, future podcast is Dubai itself, uh, the entire ecosystem that is de developing and brewing in uh, Saudi Arabia and Dubai in the Middle East, number one. And number two, uh, some of the emerging markets or their you know, by now they're actually very mature. This is India and Pakistan. And what has sort of, what has given the, um, uh, what has given the, 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 the growth of, um, of that incredible region, which is becoming more and more interesting um, with some of the investors and manufacturers who typically were doing some business in China. Um, and now all of a sudden, India is becoming this very interesting uh, alternative to China and uh, Pakistan as well, and yet there are some issues with Pakistan in terms of infrastructure and in terms of the attractiveness of the region and so forth. But those topics that are very, very interesting, I'd love to discuss next, and um, you know, maybe I, not right now, but, but next. Sure, I'll be happy to share my thoughts on both that, on this region, yes. on India, on Pakistan. I, I mean, and I can tell you, I mean, I come from Pakistan, you know, I've got family there, it's, it's a country I know reasonably well, even though I've not lived uh, or, or was, nor was I raised there. And India, I've got a fair amount of knowledge. I've been there a few times. And one of my own current existing portfolio companies has just de you know, deployed their beater in the Indian market this month. So I've got real insights as to what is happening other than what you read in the public domain. And then, of Absolutely. course, GCC, the GCC reason, if you'd asked me this question in 2004, my answer would be, I don't know, but thankfully in my rucksack, I have 16 years of data points. I can sh I'll be happy to share with you and your listeners. Uh, Wonderful. We appreciate it. And we thank you for this uh, initial podcast. Uh, you're, sorry you're hearing some sirens in the back. I'm in the middle of New York City. So uh, okay. there, there's all kinds of stuff going on, of course. But uh, we appreciate your um, knowledge. We appreciate your presence here and wishing you all the best. Until next time. Thank you very much, Alex. God bless. Take care and stay safe. Thank you. Bye-bye.